Amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, students, for leading us in worship so well this morning. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. The book of Acts chapter 16. In September of last year, a double disaster rocked the central region of Indonesia. An earthquake, 7.5 magnitude, coupled with the tsunami that follows, was devastating for the area. The Dongala district prison was near the center of the disaster, where the shaking was most violent. You can imagine experiencing a natural disaster like that. You can imagine how it's even heightened when you're behind bars. And the rattled prisoners were desperate for a way out. That disaster killed more than 2,000 people across the country. In fact, when, when the government halted its search for any more victims in October, it was still unsure what the true death toll actually was. And just one day after the crisis, the prisoners in the Dungala District Prison began to riot. The warden, Warden Sufiuddin, says that as tensions escalated inside the prison, he pleaded for patience, but was met with a band of inmates who could not be controlled. First, one cell block was torched, lit on fire, and then prisoners set the football field of the back on fire. And after that, they returned back to burn another cell block. Desperate, the warden was faced with a tough decision, one that he made out of concern for his officers and for everybody involved. He opened the doors and let everybody out. Well, he acknowledges the escapees were really animated mostly out of worry for their families and their homes and the people they knew, as you can imagine, not knowing what's going on in a tragedy that great. And word had also spread that inmates from other prisons were being released to go and, and to check on their families. And so on September 30th, the day after the fire, Warden Sufi Udin addressed an emotional gathering of about 260 prisoners, the ones who had stayed. I cried, he said. The prisoners cried, he recalls. I rebuked them saying, we're all in trouble now. The rioting and burning had made the prison uninhabitable. Nobody could stay there. There was nowhere to be housed. He told them they were all free to go and visit their families on the condition that they come back and regularly report on their status. Now, it wasn't a maximum security prison. These weren't murderers or rapists. In fact, the most common charge here was some kind of minor fraud. But about a quarter of the prisoners, he said, check back every other day as they await assignment to another prison. Now, given the chance for freedom, most people, you would think, would just take it. Why come back? Why check in? Why even bother at all? But see, the thing is, for these Indonesian prisoners, when they were interviewed, escaping in this kind of disaster was no freedom at all. With a sentence still on the books and their name still on the list and someone still looking for them, what kind of freedom is that after all? And so as they reported, some of them came back to be sure they served out their full sentence. Some of them were hopeful of being transferred to a new prison, which was closer to their families who'd been displaced by the disaster. But a quarter of them kept 
coming back, even when their prison was destroyed. Now for Paul and Silas, the story is a little bit trickier than that. When the prison they're in falls apart, why do they stay? And who is it in this story that ends up needing freedom the most? Well, this episode in Acts 16 that we've read earlier highlights several imprisoned people, but it turns out the ones held most captive are not the ones behind bars. In Acts 16, we've been led up to this point by this vision that led Paul and his missionary companions to Macedonia. And they've wandered their way now all the way to Philippi. They're encroaching on Europe with the gospel. They've encountered Lydia in her household and had her converted. And beginning in verse 16, we learn that Paul and Silas were going to a place of prayer. They meet a slave girl who has an evil spirit in her. Not only that, this demon-possessed girl has managed to turn quite a profit. She's a fortune teller, and she's making all kinds of money for her owners. So when Paul gets fed up with the spirit in her that keeps calling out at them over and over again, the the scriptures say he got annoyed. He casts the demon right out of her in Jesus' name, and it starts all kinds of trouble. You see, he's upset the status quo with the gospel. He's also upset the almighty dollar. You might think that this slave girl, having been demon-possessed for this long, with this evil spirit in her, held captive by it, they might celebrate when, when Paul relieves her of this, that burden of her lifetime. But as we read in the verses just before, her owners aren't not free enough to celebrate. See, whenever the gospel shows up, it always costs somebody something, doesn't it? Whether it's the owners of the pigs who get run into the ocean, or the older brother who loses some inheritance when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. Verse 19 tells us they seized Paul and Silas and drug them to the marketplace before the authorities. When they get before the authorities and everybody starts making claims against them, you see, everybody loves a little bit of religion so long as it stays in its place, but it hasn't. It's upset things, and when it starts interfering with our lives, people want to do something about it. So they claim, you know, these guys are Jews, and that's a problem. And they're they're pushing customs on us that are against our Roman ways. It's a disruption to the city. And they're all excuses, aren't they? We know the truth. They're just worried about the buck they've lost. And at this, we're told the crowd attacks them. The magistrates have them stripped and and beaten with rods and thrown into the innermost cell of the prison with their feet in shackles, stocks, locked up. They let loose the power of the Lord on the city, and the city let loose right back at them. They won't have it. So if you're Paul and Silas, you might step back at this point. Maybe ease off the gas a little bit, take a break. Reevaluate things, wonder uh, if the call that's led you here is really such a good idea. You've been stripped and beaten and locked up. And verse 25 tells us it's midnight, probably 12 hours since they were beaten, and Paul and Silas are singing and praising God, praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's a midnight prayer meeting. And Paul and Silas sit 
painfully in their cells. See, they can endure the chains of persecution that have now come on them because long ago they already chained themselves to the kingdom of God. Being a bondservant isn't anything new to them. In fact, the, the demon in that little girl knew it and said it. These men are bondservants of the Most High God. What is a little suffering if you're enslaved to the right master? And so if you're tracking this far, we've encountered an exercised slave girl and her owners and angry magistrates, a jailer, a set of prisoners, and now shackled Paul and Silas. And I wonder, who here do you think really needs freeing? Who here is really held captive in bondage? You see, the first thing we learn in this passage is that captivity has countless forms. And it may appear at first that the people imprisoned are the two guys that get thrown in jail, but it's the owners of the slave girl that are too imprisoned to set her free. And soon we learn that it's the jailer who's got the biggest problem. You see, on top of their midnight prayer meeting, there's this little reminder at the end of verse 25 that all the prisoners are listening to them their songs are ringing out. They're being heard, not just by the prisoners, but by anybody within earshot. So the earthquake shakes violently. So violently, we're told that the, the doors bust wide open. Every cell, every chain breaks from the walls, and everybody that was once held captive is free. Well, almost everybody. See, there's still one person who isn't free. The one man who's not chained up is the one who really needs freedom. And just because the Roman system has left him on duty, don't, mean, don't think that that means he's the free one. See, he can hold all the keys to the whole place and still be locked up. This night is a jailer's worst nightmare. At the same time now, everyone's free. He's failed on his duty, and he knows what that could cost him in the Roman world. But in Hellenism, an earthquake also means a theophany, an appearance of a God showing up, judgment on him. And we don't really get to know which one he's more afraid of, whether it's the, the punishment for failing to do his job or the judgment he suspects is coming upon him from the God he's heard them praying to. But either way, he knows he needs an escape. And he thinks for a moment that he might find it at the end of his own sword. But Paul speaks up to stop him from killing himself. We're here. We're all here. Somehow Paul's managed to keep everybody in their spot. Or maybe they're all just afraid to move. Or they want to serve out their sentence. Well, someone brings in a light, a torch, and the jailer, we're told, rushes to the feet of Paul and Silas and falls down in front of them, trembling. And that's when we're told in the story he takes them outside because he has a burning question that he needs answered. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? One commentator writes that a good, helpful translation of that question might well be, gentlemen, will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? You see, when he says saved, it's not just 
the way we think of saving his ancient world may not have thought of it that way. He's talking literally about his immediate circumstances. He's in a bind. And he's also talking about the future he knows and the God that they've been worshiping. And the answer he gets is as simple and as complex as it could be. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And in this sudden reversal of roles, it becomes clear the jailkeeper was the imprisoned one all along. And Paul and Silas are going to deliver him, not the other way around. And the sudden release of these two messengers of God by an earthquake is a miracle, but the real miracle at the heart of the story is this jailer who's been freed. You see, the episode in Acts 16 highlights several imprisoned people, and they aren't the ones behind bars. And by the end of the story, everyone who at first appeared to be free is found to be a slave. The girl's owners, the judges, the jailer. And everyone who appeared to be a slave is free. Paul and Silas and the poor girl. So what is freedom really then? Because it's looking awfully elusive at this point. You know, we're a people that are enamored with freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We live in the land of the free, am I right? But we've defined freedom in some way as the ability to do whatever it is that I want to do, so long as it doesn't impinge on on your ability to do whatever it is you want to do. And as modern, established people, we've come to believe that our freedom can be obtained by a whole list of ways. We look to political authorities to to give out and take away freedom as, as we see fit. We look to our bank accounts to buy us or purchase us whatever we want to do or go or be. We look to others. We look to society. We look to the economy. We believe that freedom is for you and it's about you and you deserve it. But here, even in the freest place on earth, tell me, where will that take you? I would argue that for all our supposed freedom, we are as enslaved as we could be. You see, we're jailers sitting outside the cell doors, having convinced ourselves that because we managed to lock a few things up, that we're actually free. But the studies keep telling us over and over again, we're more worried than ever, we're more in debt than ever, we're as stressed as ever, more disconnected, more lonely, we're polarized and skeptical and bitter. That's some kind of freedom we've made. Nelson Mandela in his book, The Long Walk to Freedom, writes that as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. You see, even as Christians, we've learned of the freedom that is offered in Christ, but so often our lives grasp for idols and for other places and other ways that might give us freedom. Some are slaves to their job or some other form of success. Others are captive to a hobby or entertainment or some kind of escape from real life. 
Some of us are held captive by the need to be busy or to fill our child's schedules with the right activities or to give our family the right experiences. Others are imprisoned by the fear of what might happen to them. None of those can set you free. Arbeit mach free. That's the butchered German phrase, meaning work sets you free. It's created in metal and hung at the entrance to the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz. Work sets you free. Otto Friedrich wrote about this, about Rudolf Haas, whose decision it was to display this at the entrance to the concentration camp. He says, it seems not to have intended it as a mockery or even intended it literally as some kind of false promise that if people worked hard enough, they might actually get out of there, but rather as a kind of mystical declaration that endless labor in itself would bring a kind of spiritual freedom. So hanging at the entrance to the concentration camp, every prisoner read the words, work sets you free. But it was a lie, wasn't it? Because no one was ever working their way out of there. And it may not be work for you, but fill in the blank because your life is saying something. There's a sign hung at the entrance to your days and your schedule and your bank account that says, blank sets me free. And unless the name in that blank is Jesus Christ, it is a lie and it is empty. Because there's only one name by which we can be saved. There is only one source of true freedom, the kind that actually sets us free. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection is a story of miraculous release, not just of his, but it can be yours too. By the way you live, by the choices you make, what is it that you believe can set you free. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning as slaves to sin, held captive by the lie we've been told by our world that other things can make us free, that other things can lead us to full life that true life can be found in what I can make or earn or find or build for myself. But God, we confess this morning that you alone can save and that life in you, life in Christ is true freedom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.